0: detective fiction an escapist genre? The marketing for today's thrillers and cosy mysteries that encourages us to get away from the real world for a while by reading about fictional crimes would suggest that it is. Expecting to be soothed by plots that centre on violent death might sound counterintuitive, but it's the structure around the crimes, the power of the detective to create order out of chaos, that is comforting. Underlying all of this, assumptions about justice. That through the investigations of a detective, the wicked perpetrators will receive their just deserts and balance will be restored to the universe. And by and large, it is a police force that enforces this justice. Even if it is an amateur or private detective like Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot who has cracked the mystery, It's the police who will lead the culprit away to a cell after the dramatic denouement. Whether individual officers are portrayed as whip-smart or bumbling, the police as a whole are a default part of crime fiction. Their presence is rarely questioned. But interactions with the police in real life are not always as straightforward or fair as they're portrayed in mysteries. For some people and groups, calling the police has historically made their situation worse, not better. Whether that's because of racism, sexism, or other forms of prejudice. What would it look like if those stories and experiences were reflected in detective fiction? That's what we're going to explore in today's episode. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. Detective fiction has always been closely intertwined with the police, right from its beginnings in the 19th century. The two emerged around the same time and developed in tandem. Eugène-Francois Vidocq began organising an informal brigade of plainclothes law enforcement officers in 1811. Two years later, the Emperor Napoleon signed a decree that made them an official state security force, known as the Surete Nationale. Vidocq was friends with authors like Victor Hugo and Alexandre Dumas-Père, and parts of his life appeared several times in novels from the 1820s and 30s. Honoré de Balzac borrowed much of the backstory for his character Vautrin in the La Comédie Humaine series from Vidocq. A convicted criminal, Vautrin avoids the death penalty several times and ends up as the chief of the sureté. In Britain, a similar process was underway. Henry Fielding's Bow Street Runners from the 1750s and the Marine Police Force established in 1798 had gradually morphed into the Metropolitan Police, established by an Act of Parliament in 1829. The first detective branch, made up of eight officers, was added in 1842, and they were given permission to operate in plain clothes, out of uniform even though there was some distaste in the British establishment at the time for such organised state surveillance. Charles Dickens was fascinated by this new development in law enforcement and covered the new branch extensively in his magazine Household Words. His first article from 1851 was titled On Duty with Inspector Field and narrates a night he spent out on patrol with the detectives. Dickens almost immediately imported what he learned on such journalistic assignments into his fiction. In 1853, he included the character of Inspector Bucket in Bleak House, who was heavily based on the Met's Charlie Field. Dickens' friend and literary protege Wilkie Collins followed suit, basing Scotland Yard's Sergeant Cuff in his landmark 1868 novel The Moonstone on the early antics of the Met's detectives as well. Considered a likely candidate for the first true detective novel, the presence of a smart, competent police detective in The Moonstone had an outsize impact on the next century of crime fiction. Arthur Conan Doyle, Dorothy L. Sayers, Agatha Christie and others were all, in a sense, following in Sergeant Cuff's footsteps. In this first wave of crime fiction, the arrival of the police is not necessarily a positive development for all characters, it should be noted. A class dimension to law enforcement was established fairly early, with writers recording the anxiety felt by servants and lower-paid workers when a detective started asking questions. Over and over again in late 19th and early 20th century whodunits, housemaids and butlers insist that investigators search their bodies and bedrooms thoroughly and immediately so that their innocence can be established beyond doubt. Without a social or financial safety net, A professional reputation was vital for continued employment. Any whisper of being mixed up with the police could be enough to ensure that a servant was never hired or trusted again. But for the largely middle and upper class protagonists of detective fiction, the police represent only security and safety. Aristocratic characters might find the presence of constables on their estate asking them questions irritating, or regard inquiries as a breach of their privacy but they don't feel fundamentally threatened by them or consider themselves seriously at risk of receiving unfair treatment. If you've been reading the news at all over the last few years, you can't help but have noticed that not everybody is afforded the luxury of knowing that the police are only there for their own protection. There have been instances of law enforcement deviating from that ideal of impartial justice that is expressed in detective fiction all over the world, but the most high-profile instances, at least from my perspective, have been in the US. From the shooting of 18-year-old Michael Brown Jr. in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, to the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota in May 2020, there have been so many high-profile examples of the police themselves being the source rather than the solution to the violence. And as the Black Lives Matter movement and other activists have highlighted over and over again, These cases are inextricably linked to the wider problem of racial inequality and injustice. Both Brown and Floyd were black men, and both were killed by white police officers. That this situation, this power dynamic, is replicated over and over again is no coincidence. There are plenty of examples to draw on where I live in the UK too, and no doubt from wherever you're listening to this now. Most recently and most visibly here, There's been the Sarah Everard case, in which a 33-year-old woman disappeared while walking home one evening in South London. A serving Metropolitan Police and Firearms officer has been charged with her kidnapping and murder, and is now awaiting trial. A vigil held in Everard's memory near where she disappeared was forcibly broken up by police, with shocking pictures of women attendees being wrestled to the ground by officers widely circulated. At the time, many made comparisons with the light-touch way in which a recent demonstration against Covid lockdown measures had been monitored by police, in echo of similar complaints about the intensive way that Black Lives Matter and Roads Must Fall protests are policed. There's still a public inquiry going on in Britain too that is scrutinising the activities of so-called spy cops, the cohort of about 139 undercover police officers, who spied on more than a thousand political groups since 1968. At least 20 of them formed serious relationships with women while undercover, and three at least fathered children with them. The Met has retrospectively admitted that this was, quote, abusive and deceitful to the women involved, and compensation has been paid in some cases after some of the women took legal action. All of which is to say, it isn't very surprising that readers have started to look a little harder at the police characters in their crime fiction of late.
1: I was noticing that this police just pop up all the time, whether they're like main characters, supporting characters, or they're foils to the main characters, whether it's like, you know, it's a Sherlock Holmes situation, you have a bumbling inspector they're running things with, or it's just like the police are there, to be like uh, to help. In March,
0: the Crime Reads website published an article on this subject titled Who are you going to call? Rethinking the role of police in mysteries. Reading that really helped me to hone my own thoughts on this subject as I was working out how to talk about these issues on the podcast. So I got in touch with the writer of that piece, wanting to hear more.
1: My name is Nicole Glover. I'm the author of The Conductors, which came out fairly recently this year. It's a historical fantasy mystery story about
0: everything. Nicole's debut novel isn't a straightforward murder mystery. As she says, it's a historical novel with fantasy elements as well, but the process of writing it allowed her the space to consider her own perceptions of law enforcement in relation to the way the police are written about in crime fiction.
1: I think, I think I've think i always kind of questioned the appearance of police in a sense. I had a kind of healthy uh, a suspicion or reluctance of a police presence, but even though I was younger, that was more neutral in it as, as a kid. And I got older and realizing just how often they they appeared or I think I just started noticing. And particularly in the last few years, it was something that really sparked my interest about, because I remember reading articles about police propagandists, particularly in the U.S., whether it's shows or into movies, because there's all these cop shows in America from CSI to like comedies like Brooklyn Nine-Nine and everything like that. And there's so many roles of these characters. Even look at supporting cast, there's always a cop character. I guess around the same time I was getting more in mystery because I was starting to write my book. When you write a story, you start looking at inspirations of the people in your genre and watching all these mystery shows. Cops are showing up all the time.
0: A Gallup poll of adults in America conducted in August 2020 found a big divide in perceptions of the police. 56% of white adults surveyed said that they have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the police, while only 19% of black adults said the same. This divide has been widening since this survey began in 1993, too, with the disparity getting larger. This difference has a lot to do with experiences with the police in different communities, and the fact that situations are more likely to escalate and end badly when they involve people who aren't white.
1: And it also becomes clear, the racial issue is really strong. There's, there's lots of contrast articles that come out when there's an incident about whether someone black or brown that gets shot and where is the case where a white antagonist would probably get gently talked down or taken without being injured? Like, never I see accounts of shootings in different areas, and I, I see in the article that the person was captured and taken into custody. I know that shooter was white without reading anything else beyond that headline.
0: The way the police are characterized in the vast majority of crime fiction i.e. as the heroes, or at least the trustworthy coppers who can be relied upon to uphold justice, doesn't match the experience that Nicole is talking about. It's not being told from the perspective of characters who are constantly worried that even the most casual and routine interaction with law enforcement could put them in harm's way. That's true in books from the 1920s, and it's largely remained true in the detective fiction that's been published since. And there'll be more on that after the break. (laughs) In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. And how a young filipino woman named josefina guerrero took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of world war ii i'm especially drawn to stories about code breaking as i love puzzles and to me it often feels like the real life counterpart to solving a mystery i loved the episode called the unbreakable navajo code about a group of native american soldiers who devised a code for the allies use and i also really enjoyed the one about emily Anderson an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate, as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. You might be wondering why this all matters. Detective fiction is just that, fiction, so the argument goes. Whatever's going on in the real world, surely the way whodunits are written doesn't have any bearing on that. Except that detective fiction is pop culture, and a very popular part of our culture indeed. It reflects ideas back to the world, and helps to form narratives and trends around it. To give just a small example, there are lots of great interviews with real-life forensic pathologists and investigators out there, in which these scientists explain how much their work differs from what we see on television shows like CSI and Silent Witness. We've become so accustomed to the way that DNA evidence and bloodstains are analysed in fictional narratives, that we expect it to be similarly accurate and rapid in real life, which it often isn't. Lab work takes days, sometimes weeks, and can't always deliver the certainties that it does on TV. In fact, for a lot of people, fictional portrayals of police and criminal investigation will form the bulk of their impressions on this question, so it really does matter. Here's Nicole again.
1: Because even though it seems like in the news that we have a lot of interaction with police, most General person will interact with police on a very minimal level. They're not going to see them all the time. So fiction is their most likely way to get their impression of the police. Yeah, and it's so many. Yeah, there's so many. There are like I don't know, there's seven different CSI shows or or all that kind of all the similar genre right now. Mm-hmm. Like it's so it's, it's relentless.
0: When Nicole began writing the story that would become the conductors, she was sure from the outset that even though it was a mystery, there weren't going to be any police characters which is an unusual starting point for a piece of crime fiction.
1: I guess from the start, I knew the cops weren't going to play any kind of particular role in the story. Most, some of its character reasons, they are former underground railroad conductors. They did stuff that was, in the eyes of the law, illegal back in that time period.
0: The book is set in post-Civil War Philadelphia, and the main character Hetty and her husband Benji are newly settled in the city, having spent years as conductors on the Underground Railroad the network of secret routes and safe houses that helped enslaved people escape the United States.
1: So they're like, my definition of what's legal and what's right is totally different. So they're not going to turn to certain authorities about certain things, especially as I often learned in the past that sometimes doing that gets them in more trouble. And... I think also in some ways I was curious about like, how a story functions out of the, the world of police.
0: A story set in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War with black protagonists was always going to have to grapple with questions about justice, equality and legal authority. And that's partly what drew Nicole to this moment in history. When her story begins, the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery, which was ratified by Congress in 1865, is still very new it's only just become illegal to own another person. So her characters can be forgiven for preferring to stay away from the state system of law enforcement.
1: And so it's a time period that's always interesting. Me. I mean, it's also, it's all of my mind because it pops up the most. When you talk about the movies about Black history in America, that's a time period. I use it as a backstory on purpose most because I wanted to talk about the reconstruction period, the period after the American Civil War, because that's not talked about at all in the U.S. that much beyond, like, you know, a paragraph saying it happened. And I like the idea of using it as a backstory for the characters. That is an area that's where they got their skills to, you know, to learn how to be mystery solvers, basically. I feel like, you know, if you think about it, for me, it it seemed natural. Like, you know, they learned these skills about sneaking around, being very aware and observant, being able to pick out who could be a good person to help, who could be, like, enemy, more or less. And in addition to, like, you know, the magical element of the world I created, I felt like I got those skill sets to make them really easy to be, you know, mystery solvers. But I always kind of joke when I was putting together the idea for this, like the mystery element, and I just kind of slid in nicely when I was first, like, drafting out the story way back when. So, like, all these things kind of combined together.
0: In the golden age of detective fiction in the 1920s and 30s, police characters and the system of law enforcement and justice that they represent are certainly a regular presence. But although they are there, they aren't always in the foreground of these plots. Of the four so-called queens of crime from this time, Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, Marjorie Allingham and Nio Marsh, only one created a recurring detective character who is an active member of a police force. That was Marsh's Scotland Yard detective Inspector Roderick Allen, who first appeared in 1934's A Man Lay Dead, and then starred in a further 31 novels until his final case in 1982's Light Thickens. Several times across his long literary career, Allen references the fact that, as a serving police officer, he's merely a small cog in the big machine of the state, with little power to act on his own ethical views. Marsh was especially forthright about this during the 1930s, when she was writing plots that included elements about how Scotland Yard surveilled left-wing and radical political groups, alongside one set at aristocratic debutante balls. In 1935's The Nursing Home Murder, Allen says that, quote, As the police officer in charge of this case, I am simply a wheel in the machine. I must complete my revolutions, Neither you nor any other layperson, however much involved, has the power to stop the machine of justice, or indeed influence it in any way whatever. This is a pretty bleak view of justice, but it's one that Marsh returns to repeatedly. The next year, in Death in Ecstasy, Alan complains again that the police force is merely a machine. Although he remains a loyal Scotland Yard man for his entire career, Alan shares some characteristics with the classic amateur detective in the mould of Sherlock Holmes or Peter Whimsey. Alan is a gentleman, a member of the upper classes, and as such is unusual in the ranks of a police force that in both fiction and fact drew its recruits largely from the lower middle and working classes. In her books from the 1930s and 40s, this status is especially useful to Marsh because it gives Alan a personal entree into the country houses and county sets where she liked to set her mysteries during this time. E.R. Puncheon has a similarly dual role for his Scotland Yard detective, Bobby Owen, who joins up as a lowly constable despite his wealthy background and university education. Hercule Poirot is another interesting character in this regard. Although in all of Christie's books he operates as a private detective, unaffiliated with any official force, he is described as a retired policeman who had a distinguished career in his native Belgium before the First World War. This status largely attracts respect from the Scotland Yard officers he works with and also means that he has contacts with police in other places like Paris when his cases take him overseas. In many ways, this was Christie having her cake and eating it too. Poirot has all of the freedom of the private detective to act outside of the law when he feels like it and dispense justice on his own terms. But he also has a background that means he can command assistance from the official police force when he desires it. Then finally, I want to mention the police characters from this period who aren't bumbling and prone to jumping to the wrong conclusions, but competent and trusted colleagues of the amateur sleuthing hero. Marjorie Allingham's Albert Campion has a long and close relationship with Inspector Stanislaus Oates, who first appears in 1931's Look to the Lady. Much later, Campion becomes godfather to Oates' son. And of course, there's Inspector Charles Parker, friend and brother-in-law of Peter Whimsey. Right from the start of her mystery output, Sayers paired these two together. Her debut, Whose Body, from 1923, sees them investigate parallel cases and pool their resources in order to see if the two things are connected, after all. Detective fiction has always evolved alongside the police, borrowing elements of real-life investigation and reflecting it back for our consumption. We can only hope that as society changes, so does the crime fiction it produces. I'll let Nicole have the last word on that one.
1: I think people have been in the past interacting with this. There's been other writers of colour, even before I started writing, like back early from the 90s and stuff like that, that been looking into different relationships with how do you deal with the police, basically. It's not an old conversation. It's probably just become more prominent. I guess there's more upcoming writers as well who are also engaging in certain things that are doing different in different fashions. I'm not too surprised that within the next few years, we aren't seeing different kind of situations. But to go back to my first point. It's like it's something that's always been kind of happening. It's just probably becoming more... Mainstream might be seeing more bigger stuff happen now, hopefully.
0: This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It Book Club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode.